2 Corinthians chapter 3. This week I was uh, looking for, I'm just always amazed when I see people, um, and now you can actually see this, there are some things online where you can see people who have never been able to hear before, and because of advancing medical technology, now they can hear for the very first time. It always just destroys me when I watch these videos. You'll have a man who has never heard his wife speak, or a woman who has never heard her husband speak, and then to hear for the very first time, honey, I love you, for the, for the very first time. Of course, you can imagine they both start weeping and you all can also can see a similar kind of video, if you look, where people who have never really been able to see can all of a sudden see for the first time. Maybe they're not completely blind, but blind enough to where they don't know anything about what they're seeing. And I saw another particular video where a man had lived in, in genuine blindness for his whole life. He had a wife and a child. They were in their mid-20s early 30s maybe, and because of a medical procedure, he could see his wife for the first time. Of course, I, I couldn't stand it. It was amazing. It just destroyed me because the emotion that was there, and the doctor said, well, what do you see? Hmm. Yeah, sorry. So you can tell. I really like it. He said, what do you see in the man said, she's beautiful. It was so amazing. Changed his life to see her for the first time. Well, Paul is talking about our vision of Christ. Our vision of Christ. Seeing Christ clearly. Going from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. And how that changes a person. So that's the, kind of the theme of the text this morning. Uh, I'll begin reading chapter 3, starting in verse 4, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word? God brought you here this morning to hear this word, starting in verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not the letter, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness, righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, 
that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your holy scriptures, for your word, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray that your Spirit would indeed allow us to recognize and apply the truths that we've just read, that we would be changed from one degree of glory to another by the work of your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So the context of this particular chapter, if you remember in chapters 1 and 2, Paul is explaining to the church in Corinth that he truly is a minister of the gospel. He didn't need a letter of recommendation like the false teachers had. Letters of recommendation written on paper with ink. He said the church is his letter of recommendation written on the human hearts of the people there. This is part of the New Covenant promise in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 and elsewhere in the Old Covenant that God would give His people a new heart. A new heart to love Him, to love His commands, to see Him clearly. So it's much better what Paul has than the letters of the false teachers, the letters of commendation that they presented. It's even better, he says, than the tablets of stone that God wrote with his own finger, for Moses. But the reality is that the people, even then and today, remain in unbelief. And the same unbelief that prevented the Jews from seeing God's glory prevents people today from seeing the glory of God. Just as it was in the days of Moses, so it was with the Jews while Jesus was alive, so it is with all people today. They live in spiritual blindness. So we're going to make three points. We're going to look at spiritual blindness, first of all, which we see in verses 14 to 16 described. We're going to see the glory of Christ seen in the Old Covenant and the glory of Christ seen in the New Covenant. Indeed, the glory of Christ is the theme of the text. So let's look at spiritual blindness Verses 14 through 16. In this particular part of the text, verses 14 to 16 are actually a digression. In other words, Paul's leaving the main point, and he's digressing to talk about something also important. But if you also remember, chapter 3 through about chapter 10 is also a giant digression. So Paul's digressing from his digression to make another point, which is actually really one of the delightful things about 2 Corinthians, because Paul's emotions are raw while he's writing this letter. So you see Paul kind of in a very uncharacteristically, unmethodical manner, talking about his ministry in the church in Corinth. And for that reason, it is delightful. We see a lot of Paul's heart for ministry, his thoughts regarding ministry, 
especially in difficult circumstances. So this digression, verses 14 through 16, is very special. What he says is that God ministers to even the hardest of hearts, and through Christ, even a hard heart can be changed. But in verse 14, 15, and 16, he talks about that particular phenomenon. He says in verse 14, their minds were hardened. Talking about the Jews. The Jews, when God gave Moses the law, their minds were hardened, but also talking about all of humanity. It's the same principle. Well, what hardened their minds? What made their hearts stony? Certainly it's the fall. After the fall of Adam and Eve into sin and rebellion, all humanity became stony-hearted. All of us are born snake-bit by the serpent, spiritually dead. One of the things that terrifies my wife is snakes. She thinks that snakes are everywhere. As a matter of fact, before we purchased our house, she talked to the neighbor across the street and said, Dennis, are there snakes in Tennessee? And Dennis said, no, ma'am. But the reality is there are snakes in Tennessee. And if you get bit by a poisonous snake in Tennessee and really all through America, there are treatments and antidotes and antivenom that can help you survive. You can go to the ER probably right here in Greenville and there's antivenom for snake bites is my guess. There's only one antivenom to the serpent's bite on humanity. We know that. And I don't use this metaphor lightly. In John 3.14, Jesus himself said to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The fact is that most of the world remains snake-bit spiritually and refuses to look up to Christ. They live in spiritual darkness and spiritual death. There's a veil over their eyes. Their minds, their hearts are hardened. Verse 14, Paul continues to explain this. Talking of the Jews, but again, it applies to every human being. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, meaning the Jews, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. When the world hears the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a veil remains over the hearts of most. Christ, who is lifted up on the cross, is the light of the world, who brings light and life to all who would trust him. But the fact is, most reject the Son of God, and refuse to look up to Him. So when the Word of God was read to the Jews, there was nothing but unbelief. When the Word of God is read to the world, there is nothing but unbelief. Apart from a work of the Spirit. And he talks about this. All spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. For any person to understand and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Spirit must do a work. This gives us confidence as we share the gospel. It's not up to us to be amazingly convincing or say everything perfectly right. 
It's up to us to be obedient and share the truth about Jesus Christ. And the Spirit will do His work when the Spirit is ready. 1 Corinthians 2 says this, We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, meaning the unsaved person, the natural person does not accept the things of God, of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He reiterates the same principle later in this letter, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, to unbelievers. The only thing that can change that is a work of the Spirit of God. Remember, this is what Jesus told Nicodemus. Unless the Spirit moves, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again. We need the Holy Spirit to see God's kingdom, much less to embrace it. Otherwise, we will remain as spiritually blind and dead as ever. Your unsaved neighbors, your unsaved family members will always be spiritually blind and dead apart from a work of the Spirit. And praise be to God that He puts people in unsaved people's lives so that they might hear the gospel and embrace the truth. So there's more to the story, of course. I like how one theologian said, Our God is a God who likes to talk. And He has revealed Himself to His people and to the world in every age. And we have His words. His written word. And it's always glorious. Old covenant, new covenant, it's all glorious. So first Paul digresses in verses 14, 16, and 17 to say that the world is blind, spiritually blind, just as the Jews are spiritually blind. But then he talks about, before that, the old covenant and the glory of Christ seen in the old covenant. In verses 7 and 10, we'll see this. He explains that the old covenant has been superseded by the new covenant. What does that mean? We're going to talk about that. We should know that it was still glorious. It's still God's Word. Even Christ said, until the end of the world, not one jot or tittle, not one little dot of my Word, meaning the Scriptures, will pass away. It was glorious, and it remains glorious, although the glory has been superseded by the new covenant's glory. So how was the old covenant glorious? Well, certainly the Israelites should have seen Christ in the old covenant. They should have seen a Messiah coming and put their faith in Him. They should have been obedient to the law of God. It was said of Moses that he chose the reproach of Christ over all the pleasures of Egypt. This is Hebrews 11. We've talked about this as well. How could Moses, who didn't know Christ, how could he choose the reproach of Christ over all the pleasures of Egypt? Well, it's the same thing that was expected of every believer in every age. 
to put their faith in God. And in this sense, even the Old Covenant contained the glory of Christ. But what was the outcome? Most of those in the wilderness chose death. They chose death rather than life. So with this context, let's look at verse 7. Speaking of the Old Covenant. Actually, in verse 6, he says, The letter kills, meaning the Old Covenant, the the law of Moses. Verse 7, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, the Ten Commandments written on the stone, if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, how much more? The Old Covenant is speaking, or in the Old Covenant, he's speaking of the Law of Moses. The Law of Moses is found in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first or the second through the fifth books of the Bible. These tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments. Can you imagine having a Bible that you knew that God Himself had actually written with His finger? That would be pretty glorious. That's what the Israelites had. The Ten Commandments written by the finger of God, although Moses broke them and had to rewrite them himself later. But regardless, God was speaking these words of life directly to Moses. And yet Paul calls it a ministry of death. It's not because there was no hope or glory in the dispensation, in this particular dispensation of grace. But because the law of Moses was a reiteration of the covenant of works. What do I mean by that? The covenant of works is the covenant that God made with Adam. He said, you obey, you'll have life. You disobey, you'll have death. So we see in the law of Moses a reiteration of this covenant. Only it's different because it's not without grace. There was grace in the sacrifices. There was grace in the ceremonies and the feasts that were all meant to enable worship with the holy and pure God. But because fallen man could not obey the law, Paul calls it a ministry of death. So the law of Moses also contained grace in the sacrifices, the ceremonies, the types we talked about. But Paul isn't focusing on that in this particular passage. He's focusing on the fact that it brings death because it requires perfection. It requires God's standard to be met And none of us can do it. The perfection of the law, the straightness of the law, shows how warped our hearts are. And all humanity knows this. In Romans 2, we see the moral standards of God are written on the hearts of every human being. Well, Pastor, what about the person in Africa or Asia who has never heard the good news, who doesn't have a Bible? The law... The requirements of God's moral commandments are written on their hearts. So says Romans 2. So it's a sentence of death. All are without excuse. So from this perspective, the whole purpose of the law is to kill. Bringing us to a place of hopelessness and our own ability to please God. We're forced to our knees when we hear the gospel. We're forced to rely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So Paul's shining a light right here on the most important purpose of the law, the law of Moses. And that is that it's a mirror. When we see the law, we see our own wickedness. We see our own warpedness. We see our own bent nature, our own deadness spiritually. 
And it's a tutor that leads us to Christ, Paul says in Galatians. Galatians 3.22, he says, The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that by the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, the law of Moses, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed, Christ, the new covenant. So then the law was our tutor, our guardian, until Christ came. So the old covenant contained a glory, a glory in that it revealed to us our need of a Savior. But more than that, I want to look at two questions quickly with you. How can Paul say that it was a ministry of death, but also say it was glorious? I've already hinted at the answer. As far as as salvation was concerned, the purpose of the law was to kill. People would see it and know that they could not comply with God's law. And they died in sin and death. But it shows forth the glory and moral purity of God. And in this way, always brings death to sinful and rebellious mankind. But secondly, it always is glorious because it pushes God's people to the gospel. You know, the gospel isn't just Jesus died for your sins. That's not the gospel. The gospel is also you are unable to please a holy and righteous God in your own works. The law of God is over you. You will never make it to God in your own effort. But there's an answer, and it's Jesus Christ. He accomplished all that you could not, all that Adam could not. Jesus Christ obeyed the law perfectly in every way. So our righteousness is nothing. But the righteousness of Christ is glorious and perfect. And when you have faith in Christ, it's applied to you. As Jerry said, we wear the righteousness of Jesus. So we approach God boldly as His sons and daughters. So what is the glory that Paul references? This is one of the words that he uses about six or seven times in this text. Glory, glory, glory. It's the Greek word doxa. It's the... The Greek translation of the Hebrew word kavod. So when you read in Exodus 34 of God showing his glory to Moses, it's the word kavod in Hebrew. And it means heavy. Isn't it interesting? The word for glory, God's glory, is heavy or weight. Like literally heavy. So the glory that shined on Moses' face was the heaviness of God or the weight of God that shined on Moses' face. We know that the apostles used the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, for their studies. So Paul would read doxa, the doxa of God, the glory of God in chapter 34 of Exodus. And he's referring to that because this is what the passage is that he's referring to, is Exodus 34. And for this reason, he mentions glory five or six times. Why? Well, what heavier thing could there possibly be? What weightier thing than the infinite, infinitely holy God showing his presence on earth? And it was revealed to the people of Israel by the light shining on Moses' face. So he says this is part of the glory of the old covenant. But it's not just the shining on Moses' face. It's also the glory of God's revelation to man 
in the Old Covenant, meaning the Spirit of God bringing salvation to the saints of old. Every saint in the Old Testament who was saved was saved because God did a work on their heart. Nobody has ever possessed faith to muscle themselves up to God in faith, to believe in God. Being spiritually dead from Adam until the end of time, everyone comes to God by a work of the Spirit. Abraham was justified by faith. Faith in a coming Redeemer. He believed God's Word. How did he get that faith? The Spirit of God. Job had faith in a saving Redeemer. How did he get that faith? The Spirit of God. David had faith in his saving King. How did he get that faith? By the Spirit of God. How did you get faith? By the Spirit of God. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. You didn't figure anything out apart from the Spirit of God. He gave you faith. We have, after the the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we have something different and better though. Not just a work of God on our hearts to give us faith, but the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in all of God's people. That is the new covenant. That itself. Your heart was just as dead as any other person's heart. And yet God regenerated you and then He indwelt you, literally. God lives in you in a mysterious and glorious way. This was not the case in the Old Testament. At least as we know it now. I think our confession of faith is very helpful when we think about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and the differences therein. This is uh, chapter 5. Listen to what it says about the Old Covenant. He said the covenants were differently administrated or administered in the time of the law and the time of the gospel. Under the law, the covenant was administered by promises and prophecies and sacrifices and circumcision, the Passover lamb and other types of ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Holy Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, the Messiah that they were looking forward to, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation. This is called the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. So, with that said, the law of Moses was a ministry of death and tablets of stone, but it came with glory in that the Creator God was still able to communicate redemptive truth to a rebellious and hard-hearted people. In verse 9, he says there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. Verse 11, Paul says, it came with much glory. I think the primary reason they're glorious, though, is that they drove people to see a coming Messiah. Of course, all of the Scripture points to Christ in some way. I'm not saying every particular verse you can point to Christ. But the, the, the context of all of Scripture is the saving work of God in Christ. So it still has a glorious purpose. We still read the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and we see God's glory there. Remember Jesus talking to the Pharisees in John 5.39? He said, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. 
And it is they that bear witness to me. The scriptures, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament bears witness to Christ. That's the glory of the Old Covenant. Later he said to his own disciples after he had risen from the dead in Luke 24, beginning with Moses, the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later in verse 44 he says, These are my words which I spoke to you when I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and the prophets, so the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, would be fulfilled. The Old Covenant was a ministry of death. Paul's not wrong. But it was a ministry nonetheless. It showed forth the righteousness and the glory of Christ. It was to point rebellious hearts to their Messiah. So now you see the great wonder, the glory of God in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Law of Moses. You should know it pales in comparison. I've tried to build this up for you the way I think Scripture does with great glory on purpose because the idea that Paul is transmitting to us is that the New Covenant is even more glorious than what we've just described. We see that in verses 8 through 11. Speaking of the New Covenant, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So much so, he says, that what once had glory has come to have no glory at all in comparison. There are many ways in which the New Covenant is more glorious than the Old Covenant. I'm going to go through them with you. It's very exciting. The Old Covenant was glorious, as Paul pointed out. And there are many ways that Paul could have pointed out that the New Covenant is better. In Hebrews, he points out that it's better because priests don't have to offer sacrifices every day anymore. There's been one sacrifice, and that's Christ's. But that's not where he goes here at all. The aspect of the glory of the New Covenant that Paul describes is the glory of Christ seen in the work of the Spirit. The New Covenant promises. Would you open up your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 36 with me? I just want to read this with you. Ezekiel 36. This is speaking to the Jews about the promised New Covenant, the promise of a new heart, of a new covenant for God's people. And of course, we who have faith in Christ are now sons and daughters of Abraham. Listen to this in Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. This is the new covenant he's referring to. 
I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the promise of the new covenant. We see it also in Jeremiah 31, 31. We see it all through the prophets. A promise of a new covenant where we get a new heart. We get the spirit of God. The old covenant was temporary and pointed to something greater. The new covenant is permanent and points to our object of worship. Our actual object of worship is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we're no longer bound by the requirements of the law to to worship God, to approach God. No, our fellowship with God is not based on law, but on the Spirit. And that is the glory of the new covenant. He says in verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He doesn't say the Lord is Spirit. He said the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord is Jesus. And he's saying the Lord is the Spirit. They're the same. Not the same person. The Holy Spirit and Jesus are two different people. But one God with one redemptive purpose. Jesus himself spoke of this same interaction of the Trinity when he told his disciples, I and the Father are one. You remember when Philip said, well, show us the Father. And he said, how can you say show the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is similar. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Spirit. And if you know the Spirit, you know Jesus and the Father. The new covenant in Jesus Christ is administered by the Spirit and they are one. And the Spirit brings freedom from the law as a means of righteousness. This is good news. He says in verse 11, If what was being brought to an end came with much glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Verse 18, when the veil is removed, we behold the glory of the Lord. You remember Moses put a veil over his face? It's not because he was shining so brightly. That's not what Paul says here in verse 13. He says he put his veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. In other words, it was fading. His face didn't stay shiny forever. It would fade, and so he covered it so that they wouldn't see the fade. But the Holy Spirit that lives in you will never fade. The Holy Spirit that lives in you shines through so much so that Christ said that we are to shine as lights in a dark world. We see Jesus because of the Holy Spirit more clearly than ever before. More clearly than any saints of old. They looked at the coming Messiah as a mystery. And now we see it clearly because of God's Word. We see God's plan of redemption. So the New Covenant is vastly more superior to the Old Covenant. I'm going to give you eight quick, quick ways how this is true. First of all, the Spirit regenerates your heart and then lives in you, giving you a real faith in the man from Nazareth and writing the Gospel on your hearts. He writes the law of Moses on your hearts and causes you to want to obey. The new covenant is much better. In the new covenant, we have life, not death. In the new covenant, we have righteousness. No separation, no sacrifice required. 
In the new covenant, we have new hearts, not spiritual death and hard hearts. In the new covenant, we have a clear vision of the glory of Christ, more clear anyway. There's no veil, there's no types, there's no ceremonies, there's no priests that have to interact for you. We see Christ and we can approach God. In the new covenant, we have victory. The victory, the war is already won. We have freedom, no more slavery to sin. We have permanence, no more new words from God. No more revelation is required. We have permanence in the work of God as given to us. And like the blind man who saw his wife for the first time, this changes everything. His life will never be the same again. So when Christ works on a heart, when the Holy Spirit changes you, Everything is different. And that's the conclusion of the sermon is this quick point. We behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ now, all of us, with unveiled face. And the world can see Christ in us. John Owen in the book, The Glory of Christ, says as much. The beholding of the glory of Christ is one of the greatest privileges that believers are capable of in this world. Or even in the world to come. This is because of the Holy Spirit. It's because of the new covenant that we can behold the glory of Christ. He writes, Indeed, it is by beholding the glory of Christ that believers are first gradually transformed into His image and then brought into the internal enjoyment of it. That's why if you're struggling with sin in any way, if there's some struggle that you are just working through and it it brings grief to your heart, you focus on Jesus Christ. If it's an addictive sin of some kind, an addiction to alcohol or pornography or whatever the thing is, to to pleasure, how do you overcome that with the Holy Spirit? You look at Christ. Yes, you work out the, the details of trying to fight the sin practically, but ultimately it's in the context of Jesus. You look to Jesus. Maybe it's a moral sin or a prideful sin or some kind of fleshly sin. There's hope in Jesus because the Holy Spirit lives in His people. You look to Christ. He will answer you. This is one prayer He will always answer. Always. Lord, sanctify my heart. I hate my sin. I want to live like You. I want to see You clearly. Why would He not answer that prayer? He will. It might not be at the snap of your finger, but He will answer. Paul says that when we behold the glory of the Lord, verse 18, we're being transformed into the same image, the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. That's what He's doing. That's what He's doing when He lives in us. He's transforming us. We're new creations. What we once loved, we hate. And what we once hated, we love. We are made like Him. We see Him more clearly. We love Him more. We desire to please Him. And all this is a work of the Spirit. We're sanctified. We shine brightly. We show forth God's godliness in our living, His humility, His love, His compassion, His energy for God. The old covenant of Moses is glorious. This is true pushes us to Jesus, but the new covenant is much more glorious because it shows us Jesus. Amen. Let us pray.
Father in heaven, thank you so much. Thank you so much for revealing yourself to us. Lord, you don't have to talk to anyone. We don't deserve to see spiritual truth. You're beholden to no one. And yet you bind yourself to your own people in covenant. And you've given us your word. You've given us your promises. You've opened our eyes. You've softened our hearts. You enable us to see Jesus Christ. We pray that in the future we would see Christ clearly. That you would help us. Help us in our struggles with sin. Help us in the the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. We are a, a people who are needy. We are sheep. And we need our good shepherd. Hear our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.